Amen. Amen. Take your copy of God's Word, if you will, and go ahead and find Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. Have you ever been somewhere where, like, you looked around at the landscape, you saw the scene, and you were really just struck by it? I mean, it was just incredible. You just kind of stood there, and you didn't even know what to say. Maybe it was as though God had painted this landscape just for you and to create some type of wonder in your life. You ever been a place like that? God's allowed me to travel to a few of those places where I just stood there really overwhelmed in who I was. I remember like two or three years ago, I was getting ready to go with the family out to the Grand Canyon. And I love family vacation. I love taking the extended time for us to get away and for us to kind of spend some time together. And I was like, we're going to go out west and we're going to go to the Grand Canyon, okay? I mean, just the description, grand, it's got to be unbelievable, right? So I looked at my oldest child and I said, hey, we're going to go to the Grand Canyon. Actually, I told all my kids that. And they just kind of, they just kind of sat there. They just kind of sat there. It was as though they were disappointed. I said, no, 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 you are, we're going to the Grand Canyon. My oldest, she was kind of like, can't we just go to Disney World? I was like, what? No, 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 no. Disney World has a place. I love it, but we got to go to the Grand Canyon. I mean, it's a must-see. And she looked at me, and she said, Dad, she said, it's just a hole in the ground. I said, get thee behind me, Satan. I mean, come on, the Grand Canyon? Come, you can't just call it a hole in the ground. Hey, we went out, and we did see the Grand Canyon, and it was spectacular. It was pretty awesome. And again, God's given me some other opportunities, whether it was at Yellowstone or up in Banff, Canada, which is one of my favorite places to be, or whether it was overseas, whether we were standing there before the pyramids or the Taj Mahal or Petra there in Jordan, which was incredible. I was amazed, even, even in my travels to Jerusalem and to get to stand in the old city, the city of David itself, and to think about all that had transpired. I was moved. I was overwhelmed. But I want to encourage you this morning to join me in an area, in a position, with a scene that is unlike any other. I want to welcome you into the throne room of heaven itself. Because there is nothing else like this. There is nothing else that has so much splendor or grandeur or greatness or majesty than the throne room of heaven itself. And it's been preserved for us here in Revelation chapter 4. For us to be able to see and to be, I hope, I hope, overwhelmed by its description as we seek him. So look in Revelation chapter 4. It begins after these things. After these things. So obviously there is a transition here. John, as he is writing down what the Lord has said, is entering into a transitional moment. Remember in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus had addressed the churches. The seven churches of Asia Minor, we've looked at each one of those letters. And Jesus had called them out and called them to faithfulness and who he was. But now something is changing. After these things, there's a transition that is being made. It says, after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. So John looks up, 
And God gives him this vision of a door that is open. See the transition in there in verse 20 of chapter 2. Jesus had come to the church of Laodicea and he said, Hey, I'm knocking on your door. If you'll open up, I'll come in and have fellowship with you. I'll have intimacy with you. That was back in verse 20 of the second chapter. And now in this transition, what God is doing is saying, Now I'm opening the door to you. I'm giving you a view. I'm giving you an opening into heaven. Now that's incredible because here's John who's on the Isle of Patmos. And I got to travel there some time ago and you'd see that rugged terrain that was there. It was kind of a lonely place because John was out in exile. Some believe he was like in a cave when he received the revelation itself. So here he is on this island in a cave and he has an open door placed before him. And look what he hears. It says, and the, first, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here. So here's John in a lonely situation, and God speaks and says, hey, John, won't you come on up in here? Come, won't you come on up into the throne room? Why don't you come on up and see the grandeur and the splendor of this place? Why don't you come on up? What an invitation that was. Some people believe here that there is the possibility of what is going to take place. That's what we're told is what's going to take place. That this is an indication of the church's rapture. That the church is called up to heaven. Now I will note that in the first three chapters of Revelation you see the word church used 19 times. 19 out of the 20 uses of the word church found in the first three chapters. You don't find the word church again until you get to chapter 22, verse 16. And there again, the church is. Some believe this is an indication of the rapture. I will tell you, I wouldn't build my doctrine on that. But I do believe that one of these days, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be invited up by, by God himself. I believe one of these days, he's going to say, hey, you all come on up here. You all come on up to the throne room and enjoy it. Here's the invitation specifically to John. John, come on up and I will show you the things which must, must take place after this. I'm going to show you what's going to happen. And then look at verse 2. Immediately I was in the spirit. And behold, a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. So when we walk into the throne room of heaven, what are we confronted with? We are confronted with the reality of God's kingship. We are confronted by the reality that God is king. So you got a throne, which is going to be the central theme of chapter 4. We'll get back to that a little bit later. And there is one who is sitting on the throne. Now, who sits on the throne? Yes, I know. God does. Jesus does. I got that. That's, that's the Sunday school answer, and you're absolutely right. God is on the throne here. But what I want to point you to is that when somebody sits on the throne, that means that that individual is a ruler. So if they're on the throne, they are the monarch. They are the queen, or in this place, he is the king. So here you have the kingship of God, and it's only furthered by the description of God and of the place of the throne room. So let's look at verses 3 through 7. 
It says, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Can anybody say, wow? I mean, all right, I'm in the throne room, and I'm looking around, and there's all this incredible stuff. Like, this blows my mind. And it was blowing the mind of John as he entered in. Now, I know all of you want exactly the interpretation that you want or you should get for each little symbol. But today, if you focus on every little symbol, you're going to miss the big picture here. I'm going to give you some interpretations, but I want you to see, I want you to see the big picture. I mean, you walk in, and you see these four living creatures running around. You're hearing thundering and lightning. You're seeing this jasper and this sardius stone and this rainbow. You see all this kind of stuff. You're going to stop and say, whoa, what have I walked into? I mean, this is an incredible scene, is it not? You don't find this kind of stuff on the streets of Dubok. I mean, this is incredible. This is amazing. It is so amazing that John doesn't know how to communicate it properly. Now, I believe the Holy Spirit is guiding his writing. But look in all the different ways in which he describes something. He says that voice in verse 1 was like a trumpet. He says in verse 3 that the one who sat there was like a jasper or a sardius stone. The appearance of the rainbow looked like an emerald. You go on down, these, this sea was like crystal. In verse 7, these creatures were like a lion, like a calf, like a man, like an eagle. Why does he use this word like so many times? Because he can't find the right word in the human language to be able to communicate exactly what this is. He's like, man, I'm here before the throne, and it looks like this, and it looks like that. I'm just describing it in my own feeble effort, because this is mind-blowing. This is mind-boggling. When you enter in to the throne room of heaven, and heaven ought to blow your mind. You and I should never be able to really reason our way to heaven or try to grasp it with our mental efforts. We, we can't. If we can, it's not much of heaven. It's kind of like God. If you've got God totally figured out, then that means it's probably not God, not the one you're serving. Because the God we have is like so big and so incredible and so great, you will never get him totally figured out. Because he is God. He is mind-boggling. In the throne room, the scene itself is mind-boggling. All these different things, the 24 elders, the four creatures, this all blows our mind. It is a heaven filled with grandeur 
and glory of splendor. Take, for example, it says that the one who sat there was like jasper and a sardius stone. Jasper, that's like a diamond, basically. It's like a diamond. The brightness, the sheer brightness of it. The sardius stone. Sardius, you familiar with that stone? Any of you wear that stone? You sharpen your knife on that stone? No, sardius. It's named sardius because it comes from the place called Sardis, which we had studied. And it is a blood red jewel, a blood red type of object. These two were actually used on the breastplate of the high priest. If you look over in the Old Testament, you had the Sardius stone, which was the first stone representing the first tribe. And you had the Jasper, the diamond being the last stone, which represented the tribes, the 12 stones, the 12 tribes. So in other words, when you're looking at this, and perhaps it does mean something about not only is the king on the throne, but he is a priest that is on the throne. Here he is, sitting. This scene is so similar to Ezekiel chapter 1. You ought to go back this afternoon, this evening, when you get a little time, read Ezekiel 1. Then turn over and read Isaiah 6. Because you will find much similarity in the throne room. You'll find in Ezekiel 1, again, these creatures. You'll find Isaiah 6, God high and lifted up on the throne. So you have these different visions of the throne room, these different visions of heaven itself. Hey, how that contrasts with people's thinking today. Sometimes, you know, as we think of heaven, we, we think of it in such personal terms that we miss the grandeur of it, I think. Even sometimes when I hear people describe what they call near-death experiences or the afterlife experiences, Now, I want to be careful here, and I want to be sensitive. Because I believe that people can be very trustworthy, and they can be very sincere in the way they communicate with things, in the way they communicate their experiences. But I want to remind you in this place today that while we can be empathetic toward people's experiences, you and I need to make sure we're not basing our theology on experiences, but we're basing it upon the Scripture. For example... About two weeks ago, I got a letter. It was a letter from somebody that had been watching me, I guess, on television or, I don't know, a live stream. Somehow they'd been watching some messages. And they had written to me and they had related their experience as God called them to heaven for a short little time and then as God allowed them to experience hell for a certain time. They wrote me this letter and said, I want you to share this with the church. Well, I'm sharing it with you today, and I'm probably going to get another letter when they hear this. But I'm going to tell you that you and I are not based, we're not building our theology around the experiences of individuals. I'm not saying, I'm very empathetic. But whatever experience a person has, has to be measured by the Scripture. I do believe God can work. Don't get me wrong. I believe God can do whatever He wants to do. But I'm going to tell you that God will never do anything that contradicts His Word. So when I read books about, you know, individuals who have gone to heaven and they're sitting on Jesus' lap or they see his rainbow horse or they see believers with wings, there is nothing in the Bible that shows us that we as believers are going to have wings. I think I'm going to fly one day. 
But it's not going to be because I have wings. It's going to be because I've got a glorified body from head to toe that God's going to transform. I read the other day of this guy who was talking about his heaven experience. And he said when he got to heaven, he actually just got to the outskirts, he said, of heaven. Because he didn't see God and he didn't see Jesus. I, I, I'm, I'm having difficulty understanding that. Because the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So like I'm not going to stop in a suburb and have coffee with people. I'm going straight to the throne room and I'm going to see Jesus face to face. I think that's what the Bible teaches us. Heaven is the abode of Jesus. Heaven is the dwelling of God. That's what the Bible shows us in these places. And when we get all this kind of stuff, we miss the grandeur. We miss the glory. Because when I look at Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, when I look at Revelation, Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, they all had visions of heaven and they all demonstrated the throne. They all demonstrated the majesty and the glory of heaven itself. Stephen, the first martyr, I believe he got a little glimpse into heaven. But when he saw heaven, what did he see? He saw Jesus standing up ready to receive himself or receive Stephen. Paul, you know Paul got a vision of heaven? The Bible says that he was called up to the third heaven. And what about it? What did he tell us about it? Nothing. Because God told him he couldn't talk about it. The apostle Paul couldn't talk about it. Because Paul knew that it would lead itself to arrogance and bragging. I've often wondered about Lazarus. You know Jesus' friend Lazarus that he resuscitated, that he brought back to life? You never hear Lazarus talking about his days like after he died. You, you never get that, do you? Never hear anything about it? I mean, don't you know that was frustrating? I've been to heaven, I won't tell people. I mean, I go somewhere. Hey, I, I go to a ball game and I see rusting wind. Oh, I'm going to tell people. I go and I see Cedar Creek wind. I'm going to tell people. Hey, when Ole Miss wins over Mississippi State. God, I'm going to heaven and you won't let me tell. The visions of heaven that we have should be based upon Scripture. I'm going to tell you that no experience is the foundation of my belief in heaven. My belief in heaven is based upon God's word. Proverbs says, who has ascended into heaven or descended? It's a rhetorical question. Really, who has? And even as Jesus told the story about the rich man and Lazarus. Remember that? The rich Lazarus is taken to what is called Abraham's bosom, another term for paradise. The rich man lifts his eyes up from hell, the Bible says. The rich man says, Abraham, Father Abraham, would you send Lazarus back to my brothers? Because I've got some brothers and they need to be warned of this place. Would you send, would you send Lazarus back? And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets, which was a way for the Jewish mind to say or the Jewish mouth to say they have the scriptures. If they will not believe the scriptures, they will not believe someone even if they were to return from the dead. Think of that. 
What a powerful statement to the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture. So here I am looking at heaven. And it's not based upon my pop culture understanding of heaven. It's based now upon what God says about heaven. That it is a place of grandeur. It is a place of glory. It is a place which demonstrates the sovereignty of God. The throne. Get this. The throne is the central element of chapter 4. The word throne is used 40 times in the book of Revelation. 40 times. That's 75% of the New Testament usages of the word throne found in Revelation. In chapter 4, now I went through and I tried to count them again, the times that the word throne was used. It was a little difficult because we were traveling this week a lot because of, you know, different things going on. And uh, my wife usually, you know, usually I drive and whatever, but I said, would you drive so I can work on this stuff? And I, I was in the car trying to count this. It's very difficult when you're riding around trying to, like, work on stuff. Usually Leslie writes my sermons for me. She was just proud that I was writing my own that day and just trying to figure it out on my own. So I was working through, and if I counted right, there are like 12 instances that the word throne is used in chapter 4. You don't think that John, as he's receiving the revelation of God, that he's trying to emphasize the throne? The throne. Even when you look through the verses that I read, you'll see phrases like on the throne, around the throne, from the throne, before the throne, in the midst of the throne. Because it's all about the throne. It's all about who's on the throne. The king. Because in all this grandeur and all this greatness, all the living creatures and all the 24 elders and all the colors and all the things that are happening, God is the center. He is the sovereign one. But that's what we've been taught through Scripture. Psalm 47, 8, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. This is a reminder that when you look into the throne room of heaven, God's on the throne and God's in control. That he is sovereign. I love it that it says that the throne stood or it is it is set there in place. In other words, the idea is it's immovable. It is the throne of God. And then it tells us that God is doing what? He's sitting on the throne. I love that image. Because that means that God's not running around panicked about what's going on down here on this earth. It means that God's not up trying to have a conference with his angels to figure out what he's going to do. It means that God is not somehow wringing his hands hoping that things will turn out well. God is sitting in the assurance and the confidence of his reign and his rule. He is the sovereign God and he is over all. He is not in any way worried by the chaos of this world. And look, we do see chaos. There's no doubt but you and I need to be reminded, even in the midst of chaos, God's on the throne. I love the way one preacher put it. He said, the only thing that gets me out of bed on Monday morning is the picture in the book of Revelation of King Jesus on his throne ruling over all creation. 
I don't know about you, but there have been days lately where that's about the only thing that got me up. Is I felt like God was still on the throne. I knew he was. And I knew I was to keep going because he was the sovereign one. Because look around us. Chaos. 2020. Chaos. I don't know if you've made this connection. But if you look at Ezekiel 1, Isaiah 6, and Revelation 4, if you look at these moments where God said, I want you to see a little picture of heaven and, and in every case, God being on the throne, those visions were given in moments of intense difficulty and challenge. Ezekiel 1, what's going on? Well, the people of God are in captivity in Babylon. Their city had been destroyed. Their temple had been destroyed. They had been removed from their land. That's a big deal. I remember growing up kind of like in North Mississippi, land was very important, like to our family, like land. You didn't want to sell land. You had to keep the family land, had been in the land. The people of Israel saw the land as the promise of God. It was the visible promise. It was Canaan. This is what God had given them. That's the reason today you still have foreign policy that is dictated around this very concept that God has given this land to this nation, to these people. You still see that today. They had been separated from their land. Their temple had been destroyed. So what happens? God comes to Ezekiel and he says, Hey, Ezekiel, I think you and my people, I think y'all need to see a little bit of heaven itself right now because you're going through this time. You need to see that I'm on the throne. Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, again, remember that moment where the prophet sees God high and lifted up on his throne? What had happened? King Uzziah had died. In the year King Uzziah died. That's how it all starts. In other words, they had lost their national leader. He had died. What's going to happen? What's going to happen with the people? And God again steps in and says, hey guys, I need you to see this. I know you're concerned about an earthly king, but I want to show you who I am as your heavenly king. And he steps in again. Revelation 4. Here we are. Image of heaven. God on the throne. Why would he do this? Because the ones that existed, that were even reading this book, they were going through intense persecution. There was a Roman Empire that decided that they were going to wipe out Christianity. There was an emperor named Domitian who thought he was God, and he was going to prove it by extinguishing the very witness of Jesus Christ. And what happens? God says, all right, John, come on up here, because I got a message. You got to go back, and you got to tell the people, I'm on the throne See, every time you get a vision. I'm going to tell you, I need this today. I need to be reminded he's on the throne. Because over the last few months, we've seen some of the greatest difficulties. I'll, I'll be honest. I've got to the point I don't even want to talk about it anymore. We've seen it. We've seen it in our churches. We've seen it in our families. For a Thanksgiving where people can't gather together as we would want to gather together. For a week like we've had in our church. And you may not be aware of some of it. 
it just seems like one thing after another. Somebody who texts, they're in the hospital, they're sick. Somebody's having surgery tomorrow. A life-threatening type of situation. This morning after a 9 a.m. blended service, one of our ushers fell on these steps. He's been taken to the ER because they don't know. His EKG wasn't as good. In the last eight days, we've lost three of our most faithful members of this church. One to a heart attack, one basically to age, and then, of course, one to an accident. When chaos reigns in the world, and it reigns in our church, and it reigns in our families, we need to walk into the throne room and see God once again on the throne. Because when you look at Revelation, when you see scenes on the earth, you know what you see? Violence, chaos, craziness. I mean, look through Revelation. When you're on earth, it seems like everything's going awry. But when you get to heaven, when you look at Revelation 4 and Revelation 5, you see everything as it should be ordered and people worshiping the God on the throne, everything. That's the reason maybe Jesus said we ought to pray. And he said this is how we ought to pray. That Lord, Lord, Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I'm not telling you he's not right. He's in full control. He's never relinquished it in any moment. But don't we pray that the perfect will of heaven itself will fall upon this earth. He is on the throne. We see the reality of his kingship, but listen, my friends, we also see the responsibility of our worship toward him. So, Let's get back to verse 8. It says, The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or not night, saying. Now, look, is, did he just say that these four creatures, again, one that looked like a lion, one looked like a calf, one had the face of a man, the other looked like an eagle, and it got eyes everywhere. Does that not kind of creep you out just a little bit when you first read it? I mean, eyes, at, what are you talking about? Well, according to my understanding, Ezekiel 1 and Isaiah 6, you see creatures like this. In Ezekiel 1, they're called cherubim, which would be like a certain angelic order. In Isaiah 6, they're called seraphim, which again would be an angelic order. So I believe that these are angels, some type of angels. They've got eyes all over themselves because they're constantly at watch. They are const constantly alert. And it says that they are constantly worshiping. They are constantly worshiping. The Jewish Talmud believed that these four creatures, well, the four animals themselves, represented the primary life forms on earth. Sounds good to me. I would tell you that what they do is represent all of creation, I believe. All of creation. All of creation. All of creation worshiping. Look at what creation is saying. Holy, holy, holy. In Isaiah 6, thrice holiness. Holy, holy, holy. Holy means you're different. You're set apart. You're not like us. You're not like us. You're totally different. Not just morally, but positionally. You are above us. You're not part of creation. This is not like 
Oh, yeah, God is everywhere. God is in everything that we see. God is... No! God is above His creation. God is on the throne. And all of creation is singing and worshiping and praising continually. And get this. They're the worship leaders. It says that they cry out, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You're the eternal one. And then verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne. So in other words, they're like the worship leaders. They're like the Jeremy, the Zach. They're the ones who come and say, hey, we want to lead you in worship. Come on, chorus. Come on, congregation. In this case, the 24 elders. Worship with us. All of creation says worship with us. When I was growing up, I grew up in a small traditional church. It was so traditional. Every Sunday morning, it began the same way. The little pianist began the prelude. And as she would begin the prelude, the door would open to the side and the pastor would walk out, followed by the minister of music. They would come and they would take their places on the chairs there on the stage and the choir would come out. Any of you ever been in a church like this? Kind of like, I just, man, I remember it like it's yesterday. Man, everything. And they'd, they'd all get ready. They'd take their seats, you know. The pianist would stop and then the music minister would get up and he would lead us in what was called the call to worship. And for us, it was basically three hymns because we didn't know many others. Praise him, praise him, holy, 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 uh, to God be the glory. Those were the three. It was like the call to worship. Now, come on, people. Let's worship. The living creatures representing all of creation, they come to the 24 elders. 24 elders being who? Well, I'll tell you. I don't know. Don't you love a preacher that just tells you the truth about things? Because there are about 15 different interpretations you'll find. And there's no one interpretation given to us by Bible, the Bible specifically. Some believe that there are other angels. Some believe that they are humans. I believe that they are believers or the redeemed in some way. Why do I believe that? Because it says they sit on a throne. Angels don't rule with God. But God does say that we could rule. And if you look back in verse 21 of the second chapter... He even told the church there that those who over, would overcome, they would rule on a throne. So they rule on a throne. They have crowns. They're victorious. God has promised us a crown if we are faithful, if we uh, have sought him and accept him. And also the white garments. I think there are people here, not angels. But then again, you find all kinds of interpretations of that. Are these just 24 representatives of the church? Are there 24 representatives of the priesthood? Because over in the Old Testament, there were 24 divisions of the Aaronic priesthood. So maybe it's like priests coming together, like representations of the priest. Or maybe they represent like the 12 Old Testament tribes and leaders and the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles of the New Testament and you bring those together. What I would say to you is regardless of what you see, I believe it is all of the believers, all of those who had come before heaven itself, who had been redeemed and washed by the blood of Christ, brought together. Because listen, even the Old Testament believers were saved by Jesus. I just threw some of you. They said, what? Jesus didn't let... No, let me tell you, when Jesus died, he died for all, 
all sins of all time. He died for the Old Testament believers just like he did for the New Testament believers. What do they do? Well, when the living creatures call them to worship, they worship. They fall down. They pay homage. They worship. They cast their crowns. They cast their crowns before God. Why? It is a, an image of where they say, God, even the delegated authority that we have comes only from you. Whatever we have, even our crowns, belong to you. Listen, when you worship, when you come in this place like this, you should know, you should say, hey, God, whatever I've achieved, what, whatever I am, whoever I am, it all is because of you anyway, because here, Lord, I just give it to you. You're, to you be the honor and glory. To you be thanksgiving. And that's what he says, verse, verse 11. He said, they say together, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. This hymn of creation they sing, they say, you are worthy. You know where the word worship comes from? The old English, worthship. The reason you worship and I worship is because he is worthy of our worship. Because he deserves it. It was used of the Roman emperor when he would come in triumphal procession. And they would give him what they believed was his worthiness. What he deserved. He was... When you come into heaven, he's on the throne. He's given you everything. Worship. I'm not going to get a chance to preach chapter 5. This is the end of the Revelation series. So I just got, I got to share with you this song. I know we got to go in just a moment. but My goodness. The hymn of creation in chapter 4 and then the hymn of redemption in chapter 5 because they're worshiping, because he is worthy. Look at this group as they come together, as they sing verse 9 of chapter 5. They sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever man aren't you ready to get there one day to see the throne and to experience this type of worship service, man, it's going to be like the rock concert of all rock concerts with thundering and lightning and grumblings and voices and people singing at the top of their lungs and praising the Lord. Can't you imagine? And God gave you this and he gave you this vision so that you would be encouraged even through the most difficult times of your life because he is king. And when you are confronted with the reality of his kingship. You are driven in your own worship. Our worship should meet his kingship every day. Because listen, I don't have to wait till I get there. I can start worshiping him now. Because he's not just worthy then, he's worthy now. A.W. Tozer said, 
that worship is the missing jewel of the modern church. That so many times we've missed it. Because we've been superficial, we've been preferential, we've been indifferent. But my friends, our worship should be joyful. It should be awe-inspiring. It should be transformative. And listen, it should always center on God who is at the throne. It should never bring glory simply to a man like a preacher or a music. Everything that we do, the lyrics, the music, whatever, should bring him worship. Because he is the worthy one. My question to you is this. Do you believe he's on the throne? If so, if so, why don't you yield your life to him? Why don't you obey him? Why don't you give yourself to him fully in salvation and in service? Do you believe he's on the throne? If you believe he's on the throne, stop wringing your hands. Stop running around in panic, but allow the peace of God to give you exactly what you need. Do you believe he's on the throne? Then fall on your knees and worship him as the only God, the true God, the one that is worthy of all of our affection and adoration. Do you believe he's on the throne? And do you believe he's worthy? My friends, I can tell you again, based upon scripture, he is worthy. And he is on the throne. As we have this moment of reflection and invitation, I invite you to come with yourself into the throne room to worship, to reflect, maybe in an altar, maybe right where you are. Maybe today you've not given your life to Christ. I'm here. I want to talk to you. Maybe today you need to align your will with him. I'm here. Or maybe today it's like, Lord, I just want to enjoy your sweetness during this moment, and I want to worship you. Just be faithful and be obedient as we pray together. Father, we come to you. And Lord, we praise you for the scenes of heaven itself. Thank you for reminding us today that you are on the throne. There's so many things that are going on in our family lives. There's so many things going on in our businesses and our church. There's so many things. Chaos, it seems, here on this earth. But God, how we know that you are still the sovereign one. And God, I pray that you would give us the tenacity, the determination, the faithfulness to keep on going in your strength and in your peace. Now, Father, I pray during this moment of reflection and invitation that we would pause, we'd get away from all the craziness of this world and things around us, and we just see you for who you are. We worship you. Give us liberty to make decisions. Give us liberty to worship you as we should. We pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?